Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, uh, we've got a good conversation today with uh, Richard Beck and a gentleman named Stephen Backhouse. Uh, Stephen Backhouse has his doctorate from Oxford on Kierkegaard's critique of Christian nationalism. So we jump into some Soren Kierkegaard stuff. Uh, he Stephen has a new book out on Kierkegaard from Zondervan that uh, you'll hear about more and you'll need to go get it after you listen to the podcast. Uh, but let me tell you about another book and then I'm going to tell you about my friend Trip Fuller's event in January. The book is The Deb Club. We've been talking about it all month. It is a, uh, a novel about church power, politics, men and women, what could go wrong? Uh, The best description that I've read about it was an Amazon review that said it's house of cards in the setting of a church. So uh, go get the Deborah Club, check it out. It's only like $2.99 on Amazon right now. It's a book that anyone who has an interest in what happens when men and women do church work together and an idiot pastor sends out an email that he shouldn't send and everyone reads it uh you'll want to read this book so uh, go check it out the deborah club and uh i know some of you have read it and uh it's great hearing about that so if you if you check it out send me a message let me know what you think about it now let me tell you about another thing um i'm heading out to LA, let me pull up the old calendar right here, the 19th, the 21st in, I think it's called Redondo Beach, which is where Trip Fuller is having his theology beer camp, excuse me, theology root beer camp, and so I'm going to be there, some of our other friends will be there as well, uh, doing some live podcast stuff, and it's going to get real nerdy, but it's also going to be really exciting, I love how uh, Trip is telling me that um, it's a great event for community. I know a lot of people uh, feel isolated and alone when they're asking some hard questions and wrestling with tough ideas. And this is a great place for people to be able to do that together. So if you're interested, check out the link. I'll have it on the old show notes. And uh, you can join me in L.A. uh, January 19th through 21st for Homebrewed Christianity's Theology Root Beer Camp. All right, without further ado, here is Stephen Backhouse and Richard Beck. Yeah, I mean, somewhat. Like, I can hear, like, the heavily produced ones, like, on uh, ESPN. Right. And I hear theirs right after I listen. Like, if I'll turn theirs on, and like, I wonder what mine sounds like. I yeah. just hate mine after okay. I do that. Okay. Because are they in, like, soundproof booths and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, and their microphones are, like, 1000 bucks, and they've yeah. got professional sound engineers who, like, know what they're doing, right. and yeah. that's just kind of, yeah, yeah. But you know what? It works. Like when you did NT Wright recently, was he just on a landline? Was he just on a phone? Yeah, or, actually, yeah. a phone typically works better than FaceTime in terms of the actual audio quality because people typically are just using a built-in microphone, and that compared to having a, a, an actual phone to your face does mm-hmm. not give the same quality. So, well, Tom's on the phone. I think that was a cell phone this time. Was anything delivered during the middle of that podcast? Because I remember the first podcast, didn't you like have a break because like you had a dresser or something delivered in the middle of the <laughs> a podcast? Wardrobe. A and, wardrobe. And I had someone who texted or who messaged me and said, I have a wardrobe that was originally Tom Wright's when he was in college. 
like it was magically passed down. <laughs> the only thing that was delivered on that podcast were some great jokes. Because I don't know if you noticed, but Tom Wright was laughing he at He laughed at your jokes. He did. I was feeling real good about myself during that one. You tweeted something about that, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I tweeted a, uh, a gif of uh, comedian Louis C.K. like doing a fist pump. Because <laughs> that's how I felt about it. I was pretty, pretty stoked by that. Side note, backstory, that dog... Um, Oliver, yeah, he's he actually has a connection to N.T. Wright, which okay. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly before. Uh, but he was the child of uh, a phone conversation that happened, not a literal, like a metaphorical child. I had just finished my first podcast with N.T. Wright in Nashville, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville, and my wife calls me up and says, uh, my middle daughter, who was like <clears throat> two or three at the time, she's like. I think she's got uh, like some form of cancer. And I was like, what are you talking about? And now my wife's a NICU nurse. And so she has like the worst case scenario of whatever, like she goes to the doctor and (laughs) it's like a virus. And uh, she's like, you know, sometimes if it's a virus and there's a chance it could be leukemia. And and I'm like, what? She goes, well, you know, it could be we're having a test done. And if it was like a normal person, the doctor says, hey, we're bringing him back for tests tomorrow. And they just say test. But like for a nurse, they know what those tests are for. Uh-huh. And so I'm going, I don't want my daughter to have cancer and not have a dog. And so we'll get, uh-huh. we'll get her a dog. I'll get her a dog when I get back home. And that was my treatment for leukemia. Which I, that's why I'm not a medical doctor because I don't think you actually treat <laughs> cancer with a dog. But we were talking about a dog. I was like, I don't want to get him a dog. And then it finds out that my wife uh, scares the snot out of me that my daughter might have leukemia. So That's I, the way to get stuff in there. Yeah, house. and so I was like, okay, we'll get the dog when I get home. And then that's... that's was she it. asking for a dog? Uh, you li- ju- or you just thought that was a kid should have a dog? It, it, my wife and I think our daughters were, were advocating strongly for a dog. And I said, I don't think we need a dog right now. And Has your wife invented any other diseases for your other children <laughs> i don't think like she if started... you need a new car does all of a sudden somebody get diabetes <laughs> she should that would be really that'd be really smart if her to do that um but no she hasn't done okay. that yet we got a dog because we had we were we, were, we went with a pet rat mm-hmm. but apparently rats only have a two-year mm-hmm. like life. a real rat yeah, yeah. Well, they're called Dumbo rats. Have you ever heard of the Dumbo rat? No. They're they're bred pet rats. They're bred, and their ears are bred to be a little bit bigger. Yeah, that's where they get the Dumbo. I you like Dumbo the elephant, little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they look a little bit more mousy, and then they're and they're 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 bred to have different kinds of colors. So yes, we had this pet rat, <laughs> and such um, a psychologist. Yeah, <laughs> and but they they live they only live two years, and so. My my kids were the first time our rat died. Chai, a rat. <laughs> they were all just devastated and crying. And I'm like, we're not going through the grief process every every, every odd year. Like like we need something that has can live a yeah. little longer. And so that's how that's why I got a dog. I just couldn't go through the the, the grieving. The, the grieving, yeah. A rodent just doesn't live long enough. So you're just like constantly, oh, this is bargaining stage right now. It's about time. <laughs> exactly. Going through all the stages of grief. Yeah. Anger, denial. Wait, is it denial, I anger? Think it's denial. Denial, denial anger, anger, bargaining, bargaining depression, depression, acceptance. acceptance. Yeah. Bam. 
Well done. Larry's going to welcome me back home for Christmas today. like you had a father who's a psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Okay, speaking of homes, my home I grew up in, my dad's a psychologist. This is the first podcast in my home in Austin, Texas. Stephen. Is it? Yeah. I'm honored. Yeah, you should feel very honored. It's a nice home. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks. very good. (laughs) Yeah. I noticed you very... uh, you, you took your shoes off kind of pointedly, so I realized, oops, I better take my shoes off. It's oh. a new home. It's still got that no, new no, no, home no, no, feel No, 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 no. It. Richard had his off long before oh, that because <laughs> of his influence by Eastern culture. Or <laughs> It's very good. He just does whatever. I'm trying to avoid the dog barking at me again. Yeah, he didn't really like it. It's my accent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so for uh, people who are listening, I guess I need to set this up. Uh, Richard Beck. Hello. Steve Backhouse. Did I get that pronounced? Stephen Backhouse, yeah. Backhouse. Now, you, uh, for the last few months, you've actually been living in the States. That's right. I've been here since September. But before that, you were... Before that, I lived in England uh, for 20 years. And before that, I lived in Canada. I would stick with England over Canada. Yeah, so my my accent is all over the place. Were you born in Canada? Yeah, I was. And then when I was 19, I moved to England just... On an adventure by myself. Really? Yeah. For university? Uh, not at first. It was just for an adventure. Uh-huh. And after I'd lived in the UK for about three years, I decided to then go to university. You sound more like England-y than Canada-y. Well, yeah. I mean, my whole adult life was, was in the UK, so... Do well, they like yeah. hockey in England? Um, they do have some hockey teams. Yeah. They're not... Although I went to watch an ice hockey team in England... And it was all filled with retired Canadians <laughs> that I used to watch when I was a kid. And I recognized all their names because they were all these old guys that couldn't play in Canada anymore and they moved to England. So that was fun for hey, me. Hey, look, that's Alexander Mogig- Mogigli. What is his name? Mo, whatever. I don't know hockey. <laughs> I was trying to jump in and be cool and I failed. So they're all over there now. Okay, and so you have been in the States for a few months. Before that, you were lecturing. Is that the right term? That's right. So I'm a lecturer at, uh, at, a, at an Anglican college called St. Melitus College. I'm a lecturer in social and political theology. Social and political? That sounds great. Okay, let's, we jumped over a little bit. So you're on your adventure. You decide you're going to go to university while you're there. Yeah, I decided to go to university. In fact, that's connected to this why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was working, I was just paying my way in, had little odd jobs mm-hmm. in England. And I was um, working in the week and then going on adventures on the weekend. And one of my little jobs was I worked in a bookshop. I was a bookseller. And I was using my employee discount to work my way through the world's classics i was just a sort of 20 year old guy just trying to you know think oh, i've heard of these names i'm going to just read this book because i've never read it before and one of them was kierkegaard really so i discovered kierkegaard while i was working in a bookshop what was the first one it was a book called fear and trembling hmm. which we will talk about i'm sure yeah, we will uh yeah and so it, then i was working in this bookshop and and then i decided i wanted to go to university and the long story short I had been wanting to do English literature up until that time. But when the time came to actually apply to university, because of Soren Kierkegaard, I decided to do philosophy and theology instead. Wow. And here I am. You always like when a book has a good backstory to it. And you already have a great backstory to the book. I mean, that's... Well, like changed my life, yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, Richard's, like, reviving old scratch. It's not like you have, like, this... <laughs> Like the you devil, didn't encounter the with devil the devil, yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't have that. I mean, you have good books, but uh, there's no backstory like that. No, it's not. In this, no, I, I didn't encounter the devil uh, working at a bookstore. <laughs> okay, so that's, that was your undergrad. 
Yeah, I do undergraduate philosophy and theology. Mm-hmm. And I did that at, at Oxford University. Mm-hmm. And then I went to, uh, back to Canada to do my master's degree at McGill University. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you talked about, uh, uh, you, you, you interviewed Tom Wright yeah. a couple of weeks ago. So I was the teaching assistant to the man who was Tom Wright's teaching assistant. Wow. So the apostolic succession has yeah. come down to me. Yeah. Yeah, if you touched yeah. the hem of his garment, you probably would get some yeah. of... So a little bit of Tom Wright. Now, is, you yeah. have more Tom Wright connections. I don't know if you want to put on, on the radio waves, but <laughs> uh, I mean, you have to now. Well, it's a small world in England, so we always bump into each other eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where did you bump into him uh, and spend the most time with? Sometime? No? <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll keep, I'll say that one on the wrap-up podcast. Um. <laughs> Tom, has, Tom has been a, a guest speaker at our college a couple of times, uh-huh. and uh, we have mutual friends and colleagues as well, and, uh-huh. uh, and I'm good friends with one of his sons. So yes. I'm, yeah, Tom Wright, I'm a fan of Tom in, uh, both as a person and as a professional. Can I ask about his son? Are, are we allowed to talk about that? His son's a great guy, and his son might even be listening. His son's a great guy with the cutest little girl and the cutest little boy you've ever seen. And you're saying cutest little girl because my daughters are not. I haven't in my seen house. your daughters, yes. so <laughs> at you. the moment it goes to Tom Wright's <laughs> granddaughter. Now you're actually crashing at our house tonight, and you're sleeping in the playroom of the girls. So That's great. you shouldn't offend them, or they might like not let you play with I'm, the toys. I'm sure that they are beautiful young ladies, and yeah. I can't wait to meet. They're them. wonderful. Okay. They're, they are great. I'm not going to lie. I mean, they're awesome. It's, okay, so I got introduced to you through, uh, through Richard. Richard That's right. connected us. So how do you two actually know each other? We were on Jersey Island, which is in the Channel Islands, right yep. off the side, of, right, right, right off the coast of, in between France and uh, Britain. So right? that's not near the Jersey Shore. No, but I think New Jersey was named after... Old Jersey. Yeah, Jersey. we were in Old Jersey. Yeah. We were in Old Jersey. Like, like sort of a Christian... Conference, yeah, talk. Christian Christian conference, host conference, um, and we were at that that gathering and um, talking about the intersections of faith and capitalism and um, like this is two years ago. This is like ago? two years ago, uh-huh. yeah, and then we met that. there and um, um, I heard Stephen talking about uh, politics as black magic there, and I thought it was just one of the most brilliant things I'd ever heard on the subject, and so uh, struck up a friendship and. Uh, was excited when his book on Kierkegaard came out because I had an interest in philosophy as an undergraduate and a graduate student, and Kierkegaard had been influential on me, but he's a hard thinker to get your head around. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so I was really excited when Stephen told me that he was writing a popular you know, mm-hmm. biography about him and, and that I felt like something like that had been necessary for quite some time because there wasn't anything to kind of just immediately hand somebody who wanted an introduction to Kierkegaard. Because if you just hand him... Uh, oh, that's uh, one of the worst ways to introduce Kierkegaard. <laughs> right. Just hand him a book. Yeah. yeah. And I've always felt like when you wanted to understand a philosopher, it was always good to like read their biography first because they're always writing in a certain context uh, uh, towards certain problems or debates at that time. And so... Any philosopher, if you just grab their books and start reading them, it can be really hard to understand what they were even talking about at the time. So anyway, I was excited to see that book come in as well. Was that part of why you wanted to write the book? Yeah, I mean, so the story of why I want to write the book, it's really quite straightforward. So one of my colleagues, whose name is Lincoln Harvey, who, by the way, has, I'll plug his book. He's written a brilliant <laughs> theology of sport. The theology of sport. Tell me more. Fantastic book. on the. It's, it's a beautifully written and, and probably one of the best. It's a genuinely very good theology book, but it's also about 
sport and its role in creation. Oh, I'm, I love, yeah. I'm well, fascinated there, right oh, now. I think I might have found the next guest for you, Luke. Do you see, like, I'm, so, that's yeah, fascinating it's, to me. It's all, uh, well, a fantastic book, and I'll, I recommend everyone to look up Lincoln Harvey's Theology of Sport. Okay. And uh, he is one of my colleagues at St. Melitus College. He's an Anglican priest, and he's a, he's a Bartian theologian, and he likes Robert Jensen, and, um, and he said, I'm going on holiday, do you have a biography of Kierkegaard I could read? Because he likes to read biographies of intellectual figures and i gave him what i had on the shelf because there are a few already out there but they're intellectual biographies so they're all about the development of kierkegaard's life and thought and all his books and 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 they're they're designed for specialists basically mm-hmm. they're they're resources for academic specialists and i gave him what i had and he confessed that he couldn't even get through the first chapter and i thought this is a real problem because if anybody could appreciate somebody, it should be Lincoln Harvey. He should appreciate the influence that Kierkegaard has had on, on Lincoln's own life, whether Lincoln knows it or not, right? Yeah. Uh, so I needed to, I mean, Kierkegaard stands behind Bart. I mean, uh, Bart said, if I have a system, I accredit it to Soren Kierkegaard. And uh, so I knew that Kierkegaard was important. So I thought, right, I need to write it. If there isn't one that exists, I need to write one. So I did. So you're coming from this as you know, academic who loved Kierkegaard's work. Yeah. Uh, I would assume that someone who comes at writing a biography from more of a literary background would go, well, Kierkegaard's just an interesting guy. Like he's got a, like a really kind of jacked up... Fi- like yeah. His, his, like it's not uh, like... This isn't like leave it to Beaver. I mean, his family is a little problematic to yeah. say the least. Yeah, so he's... That's the other thing. I mean, a lot of... So us pointy-headed Kierkegaardians, you know, in our little academic circles, we know that he had an interesting life. It's just that that doesn't trickle down very well. Uh, we know that at his funeral, there was a riot <laughs> because some of his fans were offended that he was being buried in a church and some of his enemies were being offended that he was being buried in the church because at the end of his life, he attacked Christendom for Christian reasons. Uh, we know that... Uh, after he died, for the, first, for the next couple generations of Danish boys, they weren't called Soren because of the association with his name. Uh, can you imagine somebody not being called Luke? <laughs> for the next two generations in America, nobody's called Luke because it's so associated with being an idiot and a fool, right? Um, we know that when... No comments, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> no comments. We know that when Soren... Jonathan Stormer's going to jump on that on the wrap-up. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what else? I mean, we know that he had this uh, quite a, a tragic, sweet love affair that broke up. Uh, he was engaged to this beautiful young lady named Regine Olsen. And uh, after the, they courted for a couple of years, and then after they got engaged, pretty quickly Soren thought he'd made a mistake. Um, because he felt like bringing Regine into his life would be to curse her. He felt like his life was going to be a blight on hers, and for reasons we might get into, but mostly to do with, partly to do with the fact that he thought his life, he could see, was going towards a clash with common sense and common culture. And to become married was part of what you do to be a normal, respectable citizen. And he could tell he wasn't going to be one, and so his vocation was leading him away from marriage, and so he had to break it off with his fiance, and uh, the two never really they never stopped loving each other and in fact he dedicated pretty much every single one of his books he dedicated to her for the rest of um, his life and he he always dedicated his books to the single individual and he was thinking of her when he did it 
So, uh, you know, he, he's got this kind of beautiful story. Uh, he's got family fights. He didn't get along with his brother very well, and they had a feud until the end of his life, and he had an overbearing father. He, had, uh, he was the youngest of seven children. He had seven brothers and sisters, but they all died very um, early on, and his father was convinced that uh, the family was cursed as a result. And he was convinced that Soren and his older brother were, were both going to die before the age of 33, which, of course, is the Jesus magic year. number. Yeah. yeah. And his father was convinced that their family was cursed and that the father would outlive the sons. Um, he was wrong. That both his sons, he died before his sons did. But uh, Soren sort of grew up in this environment, which he said was insane. I grew up in an insane family, he said. Yeah. So when he's, uh, so the funeral, wasn't, was there something about like inherited, like what he would... Uh, did he die with money or something? Did people assume he had money? Wasn't there something in there? Yeah, so when, so the father, the father's quite an important figure. His father's name is Michael Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, by the way, literally means churchyard, which even more literally means graveyard. So, so <laughs> this is a family named Graveyard. Quite ominous yeah. name. So, so Michael Kierkegaard was a self-made, he was a peasant, a Danish peasant, um, and he was a self-made man, and he, he was a wool merchant. And when he died, he left all of his money to his two boys, the two remaining sons. So Soren was set up pretty early on in life. He didn't have to work. So he used his savings to help subsidize and fund his writing, his projects, which he had a real sense of vocation as being this writer. So um, so people just saw this man, this young man around town. He developed a five-cigar-a-day habit. Uh, he drank coffee all the time. <laughs> Uh, they just saw this man and, and assumed that he was this layabout. Because what Soren did is he walked around all day, but then he wrote at night, um, partly because mm. of his bad back, and he, had, he couldn't sleep very well. He had to stand. He stood while writing to, to mm. ease his back, but also partly to almost to hide his involvement with his own books. He wanted to distance himself from his books, and we might talk about this. But, but the, the public at large just couldn't, they didn't understand where he was getting his money from. They couldn't understand where it was going. So when he finally died, uh, he only died at 42. So he was, he was a young man when he died, or young middle-aged. And um, uh, they just were convinced that there must be pots of money in his house still. And they ransacked the house, and they didn't find anything. And he'd actually pretty much, his money ran out just around the time his life ran out. So That's convenient. Yeah. But he did leave all of his literary remains and any profits that might come from the books, he left to Regine, hmm. to his former fiance. Hmm. That's neat. Uh, okay, so what do we want to jump in here? L- let's jump in with, uh, okay, at the funeral, there's two groups of people. Yeah. The, the Christians who are upset that he's buried uh, you know, in a churchyard, and there's the, uh, his followers who are upset about the same thing. Yeah. What, um, what did Kierkegaard do that so infuriated the church the church people to think that Kierkegaard shouldn't be having a funeral in a church. So Kierkegaard's main stated aim in life was to reintroduce Christianity into Christendom. That's what he said more than once. And all of his books uh, in some way or other led to that. And he wrote a lot of, um, un- under a lot of pseudonyms, um, so for a lot of his writing career, the books that he produced were not actually ascribed to him. He, he would make up other names, which weren't meant to hide his um, opinion, but they were meant to 
they weren't meant to hide his involvement so much as they were to distance himself from the book. He didn't want you to read a pseudonym and think that was Kierkegaard. He wanted you to deliberately read pseudonyms because they represented different characters that you might find in Christendom. Mm-hmm. A bit like actors in a play or something. And, and so for him, he would write one, you know, his idea was in Christendom, in this Christianized culture we live in, um, where Christianity is the, the furniture, the background, the backdrop to life. You know, we, we have God language on our money, or we have, you know, um, streets are named after saints, or churches are landmarks. Like, it's not that there's this active and lively believing group of people in the country. It's that Christianity has been so much a part of common life that it's taken for granted. And uh, the Danes, you know, so equated being Christian with being Danish. Mm-hmm. You know, are you a Christian? They look at their skin and they say, oh, I'm white and I speak Danish, so I must be a Christian, that kind of thing. And so for Soren, he said, this kind of world in which becoming a Christian is as easy as being born, I need to make it harder um, because they're taking it for granted. In fact, Christendom has done away with Christianity. It's, they've created Christendom, this Christian culture has created the conditions in which people think they're Christian. They never even once are in the position where they might become actual Christians. Is Kierkegaard the one that said, where everybody's a Christian, no one's a Christian? Where everyone's a Christian, no one is a Christian. Yeah. And so what happened was these, these pseudonyms were a way to make, it life, uh, to make life harder. I mean, he wanted you to work for it. He wanted you to pick up some and disagree with some and agree with others and be so slowly led to positions where you might have to own this thing for yourself mm-hmm. and take it for yourself. And one of these books was a book called um, Practicing Christianity by a pseudonym named Anticlimacus. Anticlimacus. All his names have kind of jokes, so Anticlimer. Um, and it doesn't really matter why, but <laughs> the point is it's not like a, people didn't think it was a real person. I mean, you knew it was a pseudonym when you read it. But, and in, uh, in this book, Practicing Christianity, which was written by in the guise of a super-Christian, somebody who really gets it, uh, he accuses, Anticlimacus says, look, Christendom has done away with Christianity. And the church, the official church, is a Lutheran church in Denmark at the time, the, the church has presided over this. They've allowed it to happen. They've allowed, they've preached sort of Christianity that is just equated with being a civilized good citizen. They've just equated patriotism with Christianity. Mm-hmm. They've just assumed that God has chosen the Danish people for such a time as this. And, you know, that being a citizen of your native land was the same as participating in God's latest revelation for humans. Which is clearly wrong because they're talking about Danish people, not Americans. That's right. If he <laughs> said Americans, then we, we wouldn't have had this problem. Yeah, exactly. Of course. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, that probably goes without saying. Yeah, thank you. I yeah. appreciate that, even with your accent. If, if Soren had heard God Bless America, he would never have written. Yeah, he'd be like... Oh, of course, because these people actually... It's, it's he, he said, oh, slap, forehead slap. Yeah. Oh, now I get it. Now I get it. I just was born in the wrong culture that associated itself with Christianity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like uh, uh, in that book, he is... He kind of like he's playing the Colbert character. Like he goes, I'm like super hardcore into this, but yes. really it's a parody of it. Oh, that's exactly kind of it. Well, although he really liked Anticlimacus, so, so it wasn't... That one wasn't a parody. He did have some that were parodies for sure. But the, the, the super-Christian wasn't really a parody. It was more, Soren himself said, I wish I was this good. Um, and what, but what the book does, is it deliberately asked the bishop, it said to the bishop of, who presided over all of Christian Denmark, and said, now that I've explained to you what real Christianity is, will you confess that the church has not preached it? Mm-hmm. 
do you think that the Bishop of Old Denmark yeah. agreed? No, of course not. He stayed silent. And uh, this bishop's name was Bishop Munster, which is a great name. It is a good name. Um, and Bishop Munster, when Bishop Munster finally died, after having remained completely silent in, in the face of this accusation, um, who, he was a friend of Soren's, by the way. I mean, they, it wasn't just a stranger. He was an actual friend of his. At this bishop's funeral, the next bishop in line preached a sermon in which he said, surely Bishop Munster was a witness to the faith. His death is, he's in a long line of martyrs stretching back to the early church. You know, he kind of equated this bishop with, with, with the apostles and with the martyrs. And here's Soren sort of vibrating angrily in his pew at this funeral service saying, this, this bishop wasn't, he wasn't a martyr. His life was not made harder by being a Christian. He was, he was a civilized, cultured person. And he equated that with Christianity. So what Soren did is he went home and he wrote a quite scathing letter, which he published in a newspaper, a public letter, um, attacking this, the memory of this beloved old duffer. Who was his bishop, friend? Who was his friend, his mm-hmm. father's friend. Uh, and it was a scandal. And it was seen to be scandalous. And in fact, Soren knew it would be. He was deliberately trying to cause offense in a way to... He, he likened his... His actions is like, you know, taking a stick to a, a hornet's nest. He's deliberately shaking things up. And what that, that first letter became what's known as the Attack Upon Christendom, which was mm-hmm. a series of non-pseudonymous. He, he abandoned all pseudonyms, and he, under his own name, he wrote these quite scathing, quite funny, del- very funny, actually, satirical pieces, very angry, righteously angry, um, public denunciations of various aspects of public Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he died in the middle of that. So in the middle of this kind of attack mm-hmm. on the public figures it, through the newspapers and, uh, and that kind of thing, he died. And so this was the huge scandal that he's died in the middle of his attack on Christendom when he's described all pastors and priests as liars and perjurers. And so now what, we, well, now what should we do? Should, should he have a Christian burial or not? Yeah. Know? And well, that's what caused all the fuss. Well, I would like to think that anyone who gives a scathing critique of me would also have an untimely death. Like, I want that <laughs> to be duly noted. Like, if you leave a bad review on iTunes of this podcast, it could go the same way as Kierkegaard. Uh, so, so there's two responses. You obviously have the church who's not very happy with this critique that he is giving them. But there's also the group of people who were at the funeral, they're upset that it's actually in a church. They're yeah. devoted followers of him. Yeah. Who are these people? Who are the ones who are, who, who are picking up what he's putting down? Um, he, he thought he was writing, he said he was writing for the common man. He thought he was writing for normal people, which is quite funny, because if you've ever read any of Soren's books, he has overestimated our ability to understand <laughs> him. I mean, he was a genius, and he pitched it too high. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, he thought it was, he expected you to really get it and then kind of understand what he was getting at and move from one pseudonym to the next and then sort of leading up to this attack on Christendom and to totally follow him every step of the way. And, it, and the reality is almost nobody could follow him, except that by the time he, he did have some people who liked it, um, university students, some university students. He had a devoted cousin who, who led one of the protests at the funeral. Um, and also he had a lot of 
he had uh, these final days of his life, the final sort of uh, newspaper material stuff had attracted quite a lot of people who were already angry at the church for various reasons or other. Anyway, so he kind of, he didn't want those people. He wasn't trying to get them, but he did naturally attract a kind of an anti-Christian character Hmm. as well, even though Kierkegaard's attack on Christendom was for deeply Christian reasons. Um, I think that there was a sort of a, 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 an unruly element that was attracted to Kierkegaard for, yeah. for their own reasons, yeah. So it was partly, partly uh, people who really understood what he was getting at and genuinely liked what he was saying, and other people who just saw it as an opportunity to, to get their own agenda in. Yeah, yeah. But, but he thought he was writing for the common man, and for the for most part, he, uh, the common men liked him. Well, okay, so Kierkegaard starts off, and isn't he seen... Okay, the problem with this book is I read it like... There's no problem. There's no problem with the book. The problem with me talking about it right now is you sent me this like six months ago or nine months ago, whenever before it came out. And I'm like, okay, let's remember back to back then when I read the book, Uh, which is deeply flawed on your part. Like, don't ask me to read a book (laughs) however long ago that was. But um, wasn't he like a a poor student as a kid? So, yeah, he took, he was an, he was a theology uh, undergraduate. And most people, should have had it done within about four years. I think he took, I mean, he'd, he'd been in the school for, I think, seven years before he'd even taken his exams. Yeah. Um, he wasn't that he wasn't intelligent. He just didn't care. He was bored. Yeah. He was so bored by it, and he was turned off by the, the kind of attitude in the Danish intelligentsia and the academy. Yeah. And in fact, he didn't like, I mean, he's now associated with philosophy and theology, but in fact, he hated theologians and philosophers. He thought that we were the reasons why everything had gone so wrong. Yeah. He likened uh, the work that we do as theologians. He said, it's like a naughty boy who knows he's going to get a spanking. And so he goes and he stuffs lots of newspaper down his underwear so that when he gets the spanking, (laughs) it's padding. And he says, that's what philosophy and theology (laughs) and biblical studies, it's padding. We, we, we put lots of padding between us and the gospels because we, we don't want to get a spanking. So he didn't like being a, he didn't think of himself as a theologian or a philosopher. He thought of himself as a poet. Hmm. Um, yeah, so he, and he was never had a university position. He wasn't, he was very intelligent and very well read and he spoke, read Hebrew and Greek and Latin and German and Danish. Hmm. Um, but he, he never held a university position or anything like that. Hmm. Yeah. Let me, let me ask a little bit about just, I came across Kierkegaard, um, because I was really in existentialism, um, as a, as a. For, as a person, and did you have a copy of Nietzsche and you underlined? Yeah, that yeah, is so true. Well, existentialism and existentialism runs a lot through the stuff I've written because um, it has a lot to do with the making of meaning. You know yeah. that life comes to us, especially slavery to death. Right, yeah. right. In in life, but that that was like my big existential crisis in college. Like, what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And but from then later on as a psychologist, right, you, you, people come to you with tragedy. There's illnesses. There's unemployment. There's things, and they have, to, they have to construct meaning. And so anyway, I've just been always interested in how we make meaning out of, out of existence. And so when you get into existentialism, you know, you always go hmm. back to Kierkegaard. Well, is, he's is, the father of is the father of existentialism. But existentialism has often been associated with um, atheism or, or yeah. non-belief. And so it was yeah. always interesting to me as yeah. a Christian that the father of existentialism yeah. was also a person of faith. So, so walk, walk me through, like, 
what what are the intersections between existentialism and and Christianity as you see them in the work of Kierkegaard? Like like what what are the what are the things that make him an existentialist and wh- yeah. how do those can you, can you give thirty second intro to existentialism for those who you know don't have a doctor well, in psychology? I, I, I say it. I don't know how Richard says it. You you go you give your one, Richard, and I'll give my, my definition of existentialism. Yeah. Um. I, Again, I've always rooted existentialism in in um, that in the in the, the the trajectory of thought that suggests that life doesn't come with an intrinsic meaning to it. That meaning has to be constructed, um, and and therefore has to be reconstruct. You know, um, and that we're all and then because it's something we have to construct, we have to take responsibility for that, and that it's also something that isn't done once, but it is has to be done over and over again. Right. Um, and so, so the multiple different threads there about meaning being constructed and and and, and decisions right. and choices to be made and responsibilities that are born um, over the meaning that is constructed. Right. Um, so those are just some of the themes that I would say. I don't know if that's yeah. a good definition. Yeah, I, I think so. For for what I often tell people is, exist existentialism is just a kind of a a long way of saying your existence matters. It's mm-hmm. existenceism. So what Soren did is he took your personal identity, your reality as an individual, really seriously. So what he said was, you, Richard, you, Luke, you are more important than any group that you are a part of. So your full identity is not defined by the fact that you are white or male or American or married or single or gay or straight or you know, old or young. Like Any kind of group or association you might care to label yourself will not be the sum of your identity. And one of the inhuman forces in the world is that we we see those things as temptations to put all our identity in. So there's this, uh, the herd mentality or the group think becomes something that we almost willingly subsume our existence into a group. We find our meaning in this group. Ah, this church will do all the heavy lifting for me or my nation will do all the work for me or my family or whatever group you care to name. What existentialism does is it tries to very deliberately say, no, you are more important. Your existence matters more than any, before we ever get to what groups define your identity, your whole identity is deeper than that, and it comes with responsibility. Mm-hmm. So, now, this is where the construction of meaning parts ways, because the more atheist existentialists would say, there is no, your responsibility is to make a choice. But because there's no meaning in the world, just make a choice. And whatever yeah, yeah. choice you make... That's, that's your authenticity. Is to, to be an authentic person means to make a choice. I don't care what you choose. right? Whereas for Soren, he, he was not an atheist existentialist. Mm-hmm. He was, we all come with existence. Our existence comes with responsibility. And your responsibility is eternally before the eye of God. You, you exist as a person always in the eye of God. You're always before God. So that becoming an authentic person wasn't just making a good choice. It was only in if if god exists mm-hmm. then god is the one in which we live and move and have our being and if you aren't making choices to orient yourself to god then you're making an inhuman choice because you'll never become authentic mm-hmm. if you can describe your identity without constant reference to god then you're doing it wrong because god is the source mm-hmm. of all our being right so for him and then because he's a christian it was the incarnation the incarnation is god telling us this is what i look like 
So for Kierkegaard, his existentialism was, was, very, in, mm-hmm. was very incarnational. It was always centered on what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? And the, cho- and the choice that you'd be faced with every moment. And you're faced with that every choice. Moment. Which is why Christendom, one of Christendom's big problems is it has created the condition in which there are people who think that they're Christian who have never been in that moment before Jesus Christ. They're not constantly having to make that choice of, do you have faith in Jesus or are you offended by him? Instead, they have the choice of, well, I, I'm a part of a Christian family, so I guess I'm a Christian. And they've never met that kind of, there's this sort of short, sharp shock that Kierkegaard thinks you, you will face when you really are faced with the incarnation. And here's this guy standing right before you, right? Yeah. Who says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And you are in that moment where you have to make a choice. You're like, well, he just looks like a man, and yet he's just said something that's very, he's offering me eternal life. So yeah. what do I do? And there's that, so for him, existentialism was you're always in that moment where you could potentially be offended by Jesus. And if you choose not to be offended, then you have faith. And so, so I mean, a lot of those things in the Christian tradition, so I think, I think Bonhoeffer is like, you know, when Christ calls a man, he calls, you know, bids them come and die, yep. or... Or uh, even a Luther, right? That there's a kind of a, a moment of faith that we have to. Well, Soren to, was a was a Lutheran. Yeah, yeah, and Bonhoeffer was deeply influenced by Soren Kierkegaard. Yeah. so you can you're right. You're absolutely right to notice that thread through them. Yeah, um, yeah. But so so the word faith is an is an interesting one. The, my dog is attacking. Richard over Richard. here. <laughs> your <laughs> dog likes your brand of theology. Yes, he doesn't does. like yeah. mine. He's He's definitely winning the podcast for Oliver. That's right. He's gone crazy. Um, sorry, you, you started this. He's literally standing up, jumping on you now. Um, okay, let, let's transition to, uh, you've been in the States for the last three months. Yeah. So you've been here for the whole election cycle. Yeah, what a joy. Yeah, yeah. lucky you. Oh, yeah, I feel really fresh of spirit. And Yeah. As you're watching all this. Ex- I saw a good t-shirt the other day. Make America Great Britain again. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Our fondness for the queen has just gone up so yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. What What do you think Kierkegaard would have to say um, during this election cycle? Because obviously, you see, religion is so tied into the political. Yeah, it's it's funny. A lot of uh, I've noticed a lot of Americans, especially they who know about Kierkegaard, a lot of them assume, oh well, we don't have Christendom here because we don't have an established church. And, uh, and I look at that and I think it's really interesting because actually America is, is a better example of Christendom than even Denmark was. Why is that? Because of the, how Christianity or Christianese, Christian language and ideas have infused this nation even deeper, I would think, even than Denmark, self-identity. So, Examples? God on the money, God in the legal documents, uh, God in the founding myths. Um, your founding, you know, all the all the myths, all the stories the Americans tell themselves about themselves. There's God everywhere, and the Christians in this country so associate Christianity and patriotism as well. A lot of Christians do. So mm-hmm. that kind of high and the the, the 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 sacred language. I mean, even the Danes never thought their flag was sacred, and they never talked about voting as a sacred duty. And they didn't, you know, and and the 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 high. You know, the kind of religious language you reserve for your military and stuff. Like there's a there's a really high degree of of um, religious categories being applied to state 
hmm. a nation here in this country. Uh, and what is more, like quite actively endorsed by people who call themselves Christians. Like they don't, they don't see that as a problem. So uh, a while ago, George, uh, a few years ago now, um, uh, President Bush Jr. Uh, gave a speech in which he said, America shines like a light in the darkness and the yeah. darkness does not comprehend it. And I mean, that language was, he was appealing to Sermon on the Mount, yeah. to Christians. I mean, that wasn't language. I right. mean, the people who didn't know the Bible didn't care. People who did know the Bible knew what he was talking about and nobody raised an eye, right? Nobody batted an eye. That was a big, to me, I kind of saw that kind of stuff. and I was like, wow, that is Christendom. That is Christian language so infusing the cultural imagination of a people. And Kierkegaard would look at that and say, well, there's a great example of, of people who, whose Christianity has become so identified with their, with their nationality or their myth of their nationhood that, that something's gone, well, something's gone wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's a problem here that people are grown up thinking that they're already Christian because they're American. Um, and that's, that means they're in a position where they're never going to be faced with actual Christianity. Okay. They're never faced with that choice. So let's say Kierkegaard has an audience uh, with, you know, run-of-the-mill American church. Yeah. And they've bought in hook, line, and sinker, uh, manifest destiny to the yeah. ideal. Like, this is who we are. You know, God's behind this. And Kierkegaard got them to realize, wait a minute, you've kind of baptized nation. This is, you're missing out here. Yeah. And then Kierkegaard decided to give him an altar call. And he would say, okay, you bought into this gospel um, that I'm preaching. This is the response. This is how you respond. This is how you're saved. What do you think Kierkegaard says is that action step for those people? What, to be saved? Like, I get the metaphor here. Like, what would he say you should do? Like, what's your next step? If you believe what he's saying, therefore you do what? Um, so I, I do want to answer your question. I, mean, I don't think he'd have a direct answer to that. It, it kind of has to do with how Christ, Jesus Christ-centered he really was. So, so, so like I said before, if you can describe yourself without constant reference to the incarnation, you're doing it wrong. If you can describe your actions without constant reference, you're not doing it in a Christian way. And if Christianity is true, if the incarnation really happened, then you're not doing it in a realistic way either. You know? mm-hmm. So for Soren, he said, look, I can't prove it, but if the incarnation happened, it's the most important event in the history of events happening. Mm-hmm. And the problem with Christianized nationalism, of which Denmark definitely had one, was in what you're actually saying is, um, we are now the new revelation. Like, we're the latest example of God's revelation on earth, hmm. right? So, um, and, and, and the liberal progressives, I mean, how many of your liberal listeners, how many of their hearts went pitter-patter when Obama talked about being on the right side of history? You know, that, that also is Christianized nationalism. The idea that we're in the myth of progress, the, myth, the liberal myth of progress is just as much kind of that, this Christianized nationalism as the myth of the golden age. Mm-hmm. which the conservatives look for. So it's the idea that, that God's truth is revealed in the n- culture of a nation is idolatry because God's truth was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And the, the relationship to history is a real problem. You can have a real pagan relationship to history, even if you're using Christian language, if you are thinking that Jesus was just one guy that happened 2,000 years ago, but we've moved on from there. 
And so now Christianity is about how many people call themselves Christian or how many buildings we have that are built to the glory of God or how many laws we have which reflect biblical values or whatever you want. Kierkegaard looks at all of that and says, you've just uh, replaced quantity with quality or you've replaced the quality that, you know, you've assumed that that God's truth has to do with a numerical value. The more years that have passed, the more people that call themselves Christian, that's what makes it more true. And so your triumph, it's a kind of Christian triumphalism, right? So it says, um, uh, so this is where we're getting into politics. Of, and it's not just Americans, but the way we do democracy and the way we do modern life is Christians are so captured by the, their imaginations have been so captured by this idea that if we just get more people to join our group, if we just get the right people on the right boards, if we just get the right number of votes in, then God's truth will prevail in the world. And they've linked truth to numbers, which is what Kierkegaard says you're trying to quantify yourself into a qualitative position. That's a good line. That, that, and he says, look, the incarnation was just as hard to believe in a second after it happened than it is 2,000 years after it happened. There's nothing about the amount of time that has passed or the amount of people that say they believe in it that make it more true or less true. The, it's, it's potentially offensive um, to everybody. And so he says, look, the first-hand disciples had the exact same issue that we've got now, that we had, everybody has to make that choice for themselves, that, um, that all the miracles and all the triumphalism that you might see happening around Jesus... At the end of the day, there is still just a guy with a bit of fish in his beard who says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And if you live in a Christian culture which doesn't let you ever come to that point, then you're never going to be able to have faith in Jesus as he was incarnated, right? Hmm. So, I mean, so what, what would Kierkegaard say to Trump? I mean, or, uh, did you want to talk about Trump or did you want to talk about what would he say to an altar call? I mean, for the altar call, he would just... And in fact, he does. If you read Practice in Christianity, he even does have an altar call. And he says... Just turn, just turn to Jesus. Oh, it's such a small turn, such a small step. If you would just turn, hmm. and then I would heal you, right? I mean, he's quoting the Bible. So it's this idea is that it's an individual orientation. But the thing is, a nation, a group, a church, a family can't have an individual relationship with Jesus. Only individuals can. So for him, his altar calls were always to separate from your group and come as a person. And then... People, once people are oriented around Jesus authentically, then they can start to create new groups. But like the groups don't make you a Christian. Hmm. It's only Christians in groups. So his altar call would be to separate people from that. And to, and to, I think he would try and sort of, he would say, you use the, if you use the language of Jesus, that's great. This is what it means. Um, his audience was all people who called themselves Christian already. I mean, he was a Christian writer writing to, in Christendom to a group of people who call themselves Christians. Right? He's a mm-hmm. missionary to Christians. So, yeah, I think a church would be a, a, quite a good home for him. He'd love to be in church. Hmm. But he wouldn't let people get away with just using... Well, I mean, Jesus said it, right? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Yeah. And, um, and so Soren just took that very seriously. He's like, wow, this language... If you, um, if you, if you use God language in your nation, then you are, um, you know, you're, you're committing idolatry. And then if you use Christian language in that, then you're committing blasphemy. Yeah. 
So he thought, this is serious. You know, we need to take this seriously. That may, you know, maybe our... And now, he, doesn't, he didn't think that your Christian duty was to hate your country. He wasn't all about hating it, and he wasn't preaching some sort of violent revolution, bring down the state or anything like that. He was just saying, your, your primary identity is... is it, once it's in Christ, it will necessarily mm-hmm. take you out of step of the people around you. Um, the, common, the sense that we all have in common, common sense... Yeah. Jesus is a, doesn't stand for that. It's not that he hates it. It's not that he hates people. It's not even that he hates their groups. But it's just that by orienting yourself to Jesus, you will then, by turning to Jesus, that means you're going to turn away from a lot of other things. And those things that you turn away from don't like being turned away from. Mm-hmm. And they will fight you, which is what he recognizes. And which is what happened to him. This is why civilized Danish cultural Christendom turned against him, because he said, you guys aren't that great. I remember, I, one of my favorite books that Walter Brueggemann wrote was uh, The Prophetic Imagination. I don't mm. know if you've read that. Is but that the one he quotes you in? No, <laughs> no that's a different book. <laughs> but no, what, I, what strikes it, what, what, what you were saying, Stephen, that reminds me about that book is how in, um, he's, he's speaking about the Exodus and how before the prophet, in this case Moses, can proclaim emancipation to slaves, mm-hmm. he had to proclaim the uh, freedom of God to be free from the idols and the nationalism yeah. of, of Egypt. That, like, God, God has to be set free before a word can be spoken to enslaved people. And that idea of proclaiming God is independent of um, the the gods of the nation, like like the capacity to see some sort of daylight between the nation and God, is the prophetic imagination. Because if you lose that daylight, then there's no chance for a "Thus saith the Lord" against the nation. There's no ability for right. Christianity to be anything other than the default of the status quo. And so, it seemed, as I was listening to you, it struck me that kind of that it seems like that. Kierkegaard was wanting that daylight between the nation and God because when they become identified, then, they, then you're in an idolatrous situation. There, there is no God other than what the nation says. And the Christian loses their capacity to be uh, countercultural um, or their ability to be a prophetic witness or a light on the hill to the nation because everybody is, is defaulting to the, yeah. the national status quo. Soren's... I mean, I probably should say here very quickly that, I mean, it's, the nation stuff is, is, a lot of it is my emphasis. I mean, I'm finding that in Soren a lot. Though he didn't talk about that quite so much. I mean, all the kind of politics that I'm talking about here is not stuff he necessarily talked about. I'm, extra, I'm kind of leading on to that. What he talked about was Christendom mm-hmm. and culture. Um, but in my work, what I've realized is how closely that, you can't talk about Christendom without talking about the socio-political, religious um, kind of relationship Mm -hmm. but he definitely talked about culture and counterculture and he definitely he went pretty far out on the limb saying christianity is always countercultural whatever the common culture is christianity is different from it so so soren's like uh, um if you're in well this is this is famously so when the apostle paul stood up in the marketplace right and said i'm a christian everybody was shocked and amazed because they'd never heard that before. Or he said the name Jesus Christ. Um, if I stand up in the marketplace and say the name Jesus Christ, 
people think I've stubbed my toe. Right? That's, yeah. that's Christendom. Because everybody's heard mm-hmm. the name of Jesus. They just might think it's a swear word. Um, and Soren said, look, uh, when Paul said he was a Christian, that was something that, that was counter to the culture. So now, I have to say I'm not one. Which is why at the end of his life, he said he wasn't a Christian anymore. He said, I'm not a Christian. And yet he continued to write about Jesus. And he continued, you know, and what he meant by that, what he was doing was he was, he was being counter. He's like, well, in a, if Christianity is always counter to the culture, if you live in a culture which calls itself Christian, you've got to make the same you, move. Yeah. You've got to be counter well, to it. And you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of all that Peter Rollins work. That's what I was just thinking, because, too. Because, I mean, and that's very, very existential. Um, you know, Tell I don't me, know. If, no. you know, Pete, I mean, I, I know. Well, I mean, is, Pete, I Pete has a whole book called "The Fidelity of Betrayal," and, and that's the premise, right? That the fidelity of betrayal is if 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 Christianity has been, has been so co opted, then the most faithful thing you could do is you know betray it, right? Because that would be the right. Christ would renounce Christianity because Christianity has become such a toxic thing or it's been so and i, I mean I, there's a, a lot of people i think in this election have, have have wondered i think you know if christianity has become so corrupted by what has happened that yeah. they feel like they can identify with it and and i don't i don't want to be too judgmental but i think there there are moments when we kind of look at and i think anybody no matter where you voted in this election have looked at christianity and go i don't even know if that term is useful anymore because i think in the culture it's been so defined or associated with such bad things i almost feel like i got to put some daylight between me and that. i think a lot of people do that in sync if they go i'm a christian but let me explain yeah. You know, like they, they try to immediately put some distance between because they feel like it's mm. been so well, I heard um, a good, um, co-opted. I heard, a, my, I, uh, I heard a pastor talk about this, Chris Vallotton, and he gave an interesting sermon. And he said, you can, he's very Kierkegaardian. He didn't know it, but he's being very Kierkegaardian. He said, you can, um, you know, there's all these questions about, can you do this and be a Christian? Can you do that and be a Christian? And he said, well, the answer is probably yes, because that word now is so big that you can do almost anything and be a Christian. But then if you just substitute that for that, can you do that and be a follower of Jesus? All of a sudden, a lot of your options become clarified. So, you know, so, I mean, he was also saying this. Mm -hmm. When he goes into certain circles, he doesn't even say he's a Christian anymore. He says, I'm a follower of Jesus, which obviously it's just a little thing, but you can see why he's saying it because it's a lot harder Mm -hmm. to be a follower of Jesus and adopt all these different um, mutually exclusive points of view than it is to say, I'm a Christian, and then just you know, carry on your merry mm-hmm. way. Yep. Yeah, that's good. Well, you got one more, Richard? Well, I was going to go back to, the, to, to the, our conversation about fear and trembling. Which, can we, yeah, can we talk about faith and reason? Well, we can. Yeah. <laughs> I was, but, but when we were talking about faith being this um, moment of decision, um, obviously people who know Kierkegaard or if they don't, the, the book that will come to mind is a book yeah. called fear and trembling. And for those who don't know about the book, I mean, the basic analysis is that is, is the analysis of Abraham's call to sacrifice his son, Isaac and, and Abraham takes a leap of faith and acts on that in a way that seems to kind of transcend moral right or wrong we look at that and say you know mm. that seems like an immoral thing but yet abraham is praised because his faith allows him to somehow mm. transcend that 
And so people have often, that's, that's the one book people tend to read about Kierkegaard, where faith mm. is, pro, you know, I think he even calls the, the person of faith the knight of the knight, as in a white knight, a knight of faith. And, and so faith is this leap. It is, it, it might not be justifiable and it might actually look immoral um, according to some structure of you know, morality. And so in one sense, there's something kind of beautiful about that where faith is a, it's a, it is a leap and it is a risk. And so people go to Kierkegaard for justification of that. But the criticism comes, and we were talking about this earlier, which is why I want to talk about it, is the criticism comes, but if faith is so divorced from reason and even so divorced from ethical understandings of right or wrong, then it seems like faith could be used to justify anything. And, and, and we see people act in, in faith toward their God and do kind of immoral things. So what's your, what's your, what's your response to that about how we already interpret Kierkegaard's okay. leap of faith and the fear of trembling yeah. and what I just said? Okay, here's my, my one-line response. Okay. Stop reading fear and trembling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wish everybody would just stop. Well, what happens is Kierkegaard even knew this. He even wrote in his diary. He said, one day... I will be remembered for fear and trembling and nothing else. It'll be the book I'm most remembered for. And he was right. And the problem is, Fear and Trembling is a pseudonymous book that happened near the beginning of his writing career. And the pseudonym named Johannes de Silentio, John the Silent One, which is a clue, says, I am not a Christian. I don't even have faith. But if I did, I think it might look like this. And then he tells the story of Abraham. who Abraham wasn't a Christian. Abraham wasn't even Jewish. Abraham was a pagan who hadn't yet even received, right, the revelation from God. So uh, the book of Fear and Trembling is not Kierkegaard's last and best word on faith. It's a voice, he's adopted a voice of a, a character you might find in Christendom. It is the kind of view that people do have about faith. And Soren wrote about it really beautifully and very movingly and very in a deep and dark way, and he produced this kind of fideistic leap of into the dark. But it's unfair, I think, if we're to, to label Kierkegaard with that, because he then wrote another book by Johannes Climacus, John the Climber, who said, I'm not a Christian, but I do have faith, and I think this is what it looks like. And then he wrote another book by Anticlimacus, who said, I am a Christian, and I have faith, and this is what it looks like. So Soren wrote many books about faith. Mm-hmm. And what you notice in Fear and Trembling is there is one person who doesn't get a look in, in Fear and Trembling. And that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't get mentioned once mm-hmm. in Fear and Trembling. By the time you get to, the, to Kierkegaard's later works and the Christian works, Jesus is everywhere. And you don't have faith. So in Fear and Trembling, faith is defined. Uh, it looks like hearing a voice uh, from God, a dark and terrible voice that only you can hear in your head and you can never communicate it to anyone. By the time you get to practicing Christianity, faith is Jesus, is imitation of Jesus. It's, and it's not a, a, a faith is not opposed to reason, it's opposed to offense. So faith for Kierkegaard is, the opposite of faith is not um, doubting Jesus, it's being offended by him and not imitating Which him. is very biblical, right? So yeah. Jesus is a sign of offense, a stone of stumbling. It's purely 
It's yeah. all from there. And so what he's doing is he's, he's refining this faith and he's turning it into, he's saying faith is actually an act of obedience and imitation. It's not an act of sitting in your room and thinking, what do I think about the Trinity? Oh, I don't really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, the opposite of faith isn't doubt for, for Kierkegaard by, by the, when you reach the full fruit of his, of his thinking. Um, what would the opposite be? The opposite of faith is offense. Yeah. So when Jesus says, come to me, and you go, no. Or if you say, I think I'll wait for a little bit. Or yeah. if you turn around, all those options are offense to mm-hmm. the guy who says, oh, I'm standing right here. Why don't you come? Um, and, and for Kierkegaard, faith means imitation of Christ. So as, as we imitate Jesus, we also will become stumbling blocks to our mm-hmm. common culture mm-hmm. and, and sources of potential offense. So, um, so yeah, so the, that kind of dark image in Fear and Trembling is very gripping. And he's in a way, Kierkegaard kind of was a victim of his own success because Fear and Trembling is such a brilliant book. It has overshadowed a lot of other people's. People get stuck at fear and trembling. They don't keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think there's a truth? I mean, what, what, what is salvageable from fear and trembling? Well, there's some great stuff in there. So first of all, the, this leap of faith business. Now, it is true that it's because of Kierkegaard that we have the phrase leap of faith. Mm-hmm. And it did come from English translations of this book. But he never did use that actual phrase. That was a kind of an English translator's s- summary and when Kierkegaard talks about the leap of faith, he's talking about a dancer, the, the movement, the fluid movement of a ballet dancer who can both jump and land at the same time. It's this idea of moving up and landing at the same time. For him was the leap of faith. And for him, he meant the act of resigning. So Abraham resigned Isaac. He resigned himself to the fact that he wasn't going to receive God's promises and at the same time, he believed he was going to receive God's promises. Hmm. And so for Soren, one of the things that does carry through, through all the pseudonyms, is this act of resignation, um, which is this kind of fluid and acceptance. So this fluid movement of I'm resigning it, but I'm still going to believe somehow it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing really is you're, you're giving up your own self-sufficiency. You're releasing your own fearful clutching at your own security in order to defend your own security. Um, he's like saying, ironically, by giving up your fearful clutching at, I must pull together everything that's going to keep me safe, by not doing that anymore, you will be kept safe because you're opening yourself up to, mm-hmm. to the one in whom you live and move and have your being, right? So, in fact, so it is just significant that the Abraham never gets mentioned again, the Knight of Faith never gets mentioned again, uh, a lot of those, those kind of categories, the teleological suspension of the ethical, this kind of dark moment where God is asking you to do something that's absolutely immoral, that doesn't get mentioned again. So, I mean, whatever you want to make of fear and trembling, I, I think we're not allowed to say that was Kierkegaard's last and best word mm-hmm. on, on these subjects. And uh, faith certainly doesn't become absent from morality. It becomes an imitation of Jesus. Which, by the way, the other good thing we get from Fear and Trembling is that he does, you talked about this window, uh, daylight between God and culture, God mm-hmm. and nation. What Fear and Trembling does really brilliantly is it, it shows or just talks about how m- morality is relative. Morality is culturally developed and cultures change. And that just by abiding by your culture's standards, 
doesn't make you necessarily in touch with the truth. So Kierkegaard's not being a cult. He's not being, he doesn't think that truth is relative, but he does think morality is relative, and he's right. I mean, morality does change according to what culture you're in. And just pointing to somebody who's a good citizen of their whatever culture they're born into, Soren says that's not the same as pointing to somebody who's in relationship with the truth. Hmm. So fear and trembling is good and useful for that. And I think that's what I've in, always enjoyed about Kierkegaard's work is that that it's something I've also enjoyed about Thoreau's work too, which is the kind of call that Christianity is inherently a, a kind of a nonconformity, yeah. and, and because it's nonconformist, um, you know, it's stepping out of the group. It's being the individual who steps out of the group, and and faith is going to look, you know, not to, to avoid the ethical issue, but it is going to look out of step. It's going to look foolish. It's not going to make sense. And so there's this, there is a scandal associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if you keep it very Christological, like you've argued, you know, that, 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 that he does toward this later work, then, then you're safe there because it's always has a Christological shape. Mm-hmm. But that Christological shape will always look scandalous it won't it won't make sense it won't compute by the calculus of the age yeah and i've always that's what i've always taken from Kierkegaard's work is that yeah it's given me the courage to to make choices um that might not make sense to an onlooking world hmm. you know to, to go against the flow if if to use a, a trite phrase but i've always felt that that was a something i've taken away from his work and do you think Kierkegaard would be proud that it ultimately leads to Richard Beck having a pink phone <laughs> because that's really the ultimate application of what that is. Yeah, you just gotta, you just gotta be me, Richard. You just gotta yeah. strike out, walk the talk. Be mm-hmm. you. Be, be you. you. Be you. Okay, so uh, the book's been out for a few months. Uh, Zondervan put it out. Yeah. Uh, give me the title again. Kierkegaard, A Single Life. A Single Life. Uh, I endorse this book. Go get it. Uh, Richard, should people get it? I endorsed the book as well. I yeah. said, I've waited my whole life for this book. Yeah. Um, if, if, if you want to, it's not just an introduction to his life, but at the end of the book, there's yeah. a survey of all his written works. So that would give you a good summary of like every book and yeah. what he wrote in yeah. each book. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, half, of his, uh, half of the book is his life and the rest of the book mm-hmm. is his works. Yeah. Yep. Well, right on. Uh, Oliver enjoyed the book too. My dog is now going to come in your lap and say hi to you. <laughs> so, uh, thanks. 